There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. We've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, I was joined by Grant Anderson. Grant is the CEO of Paragon Space Development Corporation, and they're working on how to keep human beings safe in extreme conditions like the deep ocean and outer space. We had a great conversation that went from how they go about designing their products to why human beings are better than robots in outer space and vice versa, and how, or rather when, you and I may actually be traveling into outer space. For more information about Grant and Paragon, you can go to Paragon, P-A-R-A-G-O-N-S-D-C, ParagonSDC.com. Thanks as always for listening. Remember to tell a friend. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining us in spirit today is Centauri Minor, helping us move from awareness to action is Grant Anderson, the CEO of Paragon Space Development Corporation. How are you, sir? Very good. Very good. Thanks so much for uh, being here. We are in the holiday season and getting ready for the first of the year and New Year's resolutions. And when most people have a hard time getting on a new diet and a new regiment and sticking to that kind of stuff, Grant, um, he founded a company to develop technical solutions in life support, thermal control problems related to human and biological spaceflight. So I was reading about that. I'm like, gosh, how do you even get started with that? Well, and, and that's actually a little bit of a sub, uh, a sub part of what we do. We do life support in extreme environments. Space happens to be the ultimate extreme environment right so that makes a lot of sense but we also do diving systems extremely esoteric diving systems high altitude systems and other things of that nature but how did we get started yes um really it was the desire to work in an industry that i found very intriguing and hard um when you get humans involved you know building a like say build say, say you go build a satellite a satellite is really a robot just in a really cool place. Mm -hmm. What makes space interesting to me is when you get the human element involved. And ultimately, I think the endeavor of any exploration is to have humans go and explore. Uh, robots just don't do it for me, and they don't do it for a lot of other people. And so keeping the humans alive would seem like the thing, that, the linchpin that was missing as far as how to do that, how to do that well. Keeping humans alive, that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of the trick. Keeping them breathing and keeping them at the right temperature and always in that order. Now, I, we're probably going to go all over the place because there's so many different topics that we can talk about. But I've always been a little bit curious. From your position, you you look at the spacesuits that the astronauts used to go to the moon back during the Cold War or during the space race. Those don't look like they would really be effective at keeping a human being alive in outer space. Well, there, there's the, the crux of the matter. The, the effectiveness there was also had to include how much mobility you had. So it wasn't enough just to keep somebody alive, which the spacecraft did itself, the yeah. lunar module. And it wasn't enough, just enough to land a lunar module down on 
on the moon. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to have a person step on the moon. So you needed a portable life support system enclosed in something that the person could move in. And that's where the spacesuit comes from. So if you're looking at fundamental requirements. But it did have everything you needed for what they needed to do. That, that suit is complex. It has multiple layers. It's not just to keep you at the right temperature and to keep your pressure up which was about uh, 3.8 or 3.4 PSI in that, that case, but also it had to protect against micrometeorites and abrasions and you know rub, rubbing up against something. You don't want to rub up against something and cut your suit. Right. So it had all that. It also had then the scrubbing system to make sure that the oxygen that you use up, you, come, you expel CO2, you got to be able to pull that out. There's, excuse me, there's other things that the body puts out that you need to... Uh, that you need to scrub out, but it also had to communicate with the spacecraft. It had to be, it had to provide visual, it had to provide gloves you could move to do rudimentary things on, on the surface. So it is a really hard problem, but it was an elegant solution at the time with the technology they had to, to make it work. So you're telling me that they went to the moon and successfully came back? Yeah, there's no <laughs> doubt about that. Um, you know the the, the I'm, moon I'm hoaxers. Only half kidding. So yeah, no the moon the moon hoax. Well, apparently I've seen numbers anywhere from twenty percent to thirty five percent. People don't believe it went to the moon. You know, I know personally the people who worked on that program, and I do kind of get my buck up a little bit because they are people I really respect, and I think it's insulting to mm-hmm. to say, you know, you you are lying and everybody else is lying, or you were duped. I mean, this is a U.S. government that can't, but can't keep a secret to save itself. How in the world can you keep a secret with 250,000 people working on it? And, and uh, all of the things about stars not showing up in pictures and all that, that's all. Right. Any, I'm, I'm an astrophotographer and stuff. I can tell you that stars don't show up in pictures mm-hmm. you know, because of the lighting and everything else. It's, so I don't, I don't have any real patience for hoaxers. Uh, and f- frankly, like I said... Um, uh, it really takes away from the achievement that was done, uh, and uh, and it's kind of insulting to the people that were involved. Yeah, it's fair enough. And the uh, technology was obviously effective, and that it was done so long ago—not that it was that long ago, but a good little while ago—without a lot of technology was was definitely amazing. So credit to them. Yeah, a very big credit to them. And I can tell you, any design I start out with for an environmental control system, I start back at Apollo. Um, you know, they had the best minds in the world working on that. And the solutions they came up with, you know, physics hasn't changed that much <laughs> since It's a then. good point. Um, the technology <laughs> has, but the basic physics hasn't. And so they put a lot of thought into how they did things. And if you don't look back and see how they did things, you're essentially not starting with the touchstone of where you should where you should start your program. And Paragon is means touchstone in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. That's what the the name of my company is about is touchstone, being the touchstone. And uh, to me, the the life support systems were the real touchstone. Is going back to Apollo first. Got it. So, where did the passion come from to found and start your company with this in mind? Wow. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you never really have a real moment. I, I do have a moment when I know I wanted to be an engineer. And in fact, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics did a program uh, or a, a publicity thing where they, they said, when did you know? And they actually recorded these and put them up on their website. And I was recorded as saying it was in 1971 
and I was moving to Brussels, Belgium from uh, Alexandria, Virginia, and I got on a 747. And the 747's only been flying about maybe 12 months at that time, 10 months. And I remember walking up and down that space, that aircraft, and looking out at the engines and the wings and watching the engines kind of bobble in the breeze and the wings flex. And I was just, I think I was hooked then. Uh, I'm, I'm still a aviating, aviation fanatic. Uh, my, my Facebook, the first thing that comes up is pictures of airplanes. Nice. <laughs> nice. Got it. So when you are, what's the first step in, I'm just going to use an example and say trying to make a new spacesuit. What's, what's the first thing we need to worry about? Well, uh, we always start with requirements, and there's two sets of requirements. One is basic. You know, what, what do you want um, it to do uh, in the physical universe? Of, of What pressures do you want to do? Do you want it to have a, a full-up spacesuit uh, that, that is at full pressure or at half pressure, and what, what activities you want to do? And a lot of those requirements come from what we call the CONOPS, the concept of operations. So it's not enough just to detail out, here's what we want to do that we can measure. Uh, we want to have so much flexibility. But we want to have uh, so much time, eight hours in suit or six hours in suit. You have to say, what do you want to do with it? And this is with anything you want to build. Uh, any engineer really has to say, what, how do I want this to work? Even software engineers. And you lay out this concept of operations, and then from that you derive these more physical requirements that then will allow you to do what you want to do. And that's where you start with everything, but spacesuits for sure. Got it. Okay. And so you obviously have a good understanding of all the elements that need to go into a successful design and a successful build. When you're working with a client, do you go in and say, okay, what are you guys trying to accomplish? How does that conversation start? It does. Um, you know, I just did a kickoff with the Office of Naval Research last week, and we had a meeting in Washington, D.C., and that's it. Is okay, here we responded to a request for proposals from them to, to uh, fix a problem they're having with the cooling system on ships. And they then, by sitting down and saying, well, okay, what really do you want this thing to do? There's only so much you can put in the solicitation, and frankly, there's only so much they know when they ask you to do something. So you sit down and, and you ask critical questions. How, when do you want this to actually be installed? What's the first operational time you want this mm -hmm. to happen? What, uh, what weight do you want? What power do you have? What are the operational parameters of what it's going to be cooling? And by having that interview process with a customer, uh, you can really then distill it down into what they really want. Um, and in fact, one of the things that Paragon, I think, does very well is we help the customer figure out what they really want. Uh, very often, especially in the life support world, uh, not everybody's a life support person. They don't know what's possible, and they don't know necessarily what's been out there in the past, uh, but also in thermal control because the, the technology is moving so fast. So they don't know necessarily the right questions to ask. And so we go through a fairly rigorous process and then we write down what we hear from the customer then we send it to them and say this is what we heard and doing that up front is really important that's that's where you <laughs> you prevent 50 percent of the waste <laughs> is by not doing what your customer doesn't want <laughs> and so it's very important to do to do that 
that certainly you could probably use that with any kind of a new relationship, right? Upfront, getting those expectations met. Yeah. Well, and I'm famous for saying uh, in in many different areas that um, a business is a process applied that will solve a problem at less cost than it takes to actually sell it to the value of the customer. So the customer thinks something's worth $100,000 to them. The business has to have a process to be able to produce that for you know, 80, 90,000 or whatever and make a profit. Mm-hmm. And that's true actually, even with nonprofits. And so even in our business, where our business is research and development, where we often don't know what we're gonna end up with, you can still have a process to figure out what you want to do. And that's why we're careful about the upfront part of this process and getting the requirements right. Got it. Now, a minute ago I referenced space suits. Is that a big part of the work that you do? or No, it is a part of the work we do. Uh, you know, from a monetary standpoint, it's in the, it's in the you know, 10% range. Okay. Um, you know, the, the, the market for suits isn't big. You know, there's, there's a few people. And, and there's also competitors out there, of course. Um, you know, NASA itself likes to build its own suits or likes to contract its, for its own suits. We get some of those contracts, but not all of them. Uh, SpaceX is going off and building their own. There's other companies out there like Orbital Outfitters, a very good company. And we all do suits in one way or another. So um, it's not a big part of our business, but it's definitely part of our business. And in fact, I just came back from Washington, D.C., where the spacesuit we built for the Stratex program, the record-breaking skydiving program, just got put into permanent display at the Everhazy Center out near Dulles for Smithsonian. So. Well, that's incredible. It's not my first piece of hardware in a museum, but definitely being the Smithsonian is a is a special congratulations, special privilege. I guess that's that's incredible. Mm-hmm. So, if that's ten percent, what what makes up the bulk of the work that you guys are doing? Well, well, um, we'd like to divide our work into, into thirds. One of them is contract R and D. It's uh, that's what we call the egghead business. Um, we're brought in by organizations, sometimes NASA, sometimes the DOD, whether it be Army or Navy or Air Force or special operations, and they have a special problem and they need it solved. And so about a third of our business is solving those problems for them, putting the rigor towards uh, taking the latest in technology and the cutting edge in technology and applying it and, and solving the problem they need. Another third is what we would call contract manufacturing stuff. It's still a little bit of it in the front figuring it out, but it's mainly the customer wanting us to just build parts for them, uh, whether it's for engines or aircraft or spacecraft. Um, you know, we, we put about 200 parts into each Orion vehicle, um, and the design work is mostly done on that. There's still tweaks going on, but that's kind of a production contract. Then the other third is more... Um, esoteric. It's, it tends to be more private. has to do with any stage of development from concept studies all the way to detailed designs of things that private individuals want or private companies want done for their spacecraft or for their diving systems or uh, for their cooling systems, for their batteries. There, there's a whole gamut of stuff like that. I bet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, but it's nice to maintain diversity too. That way, you know, especially with government budgets go up and down, you don't want to have most of your business stuck on one budget line. It's, it's a dangerous way to live. Right. Yes, certainly. 
<clears throat> not to get political, do you have any sense of what direction that's going to go for space exploration with the new administration coming in? Well, um, right now, the consensus I'm hearing from the industry is that it's going to be at least steady and maybe up. There's going to be some tweaks. There, every administration, and Obama did it too, he canceled uh, the Constellation program, which is a multi-billion dollar program. Um, and uh, I think the Trump administration is going to do, they're going to want to put their stamp on a few things. But if you think about it, Make America Great Again, the space program has always been a great part of America. I lived overseas for 13 years of my life. And I guarantee you, you ask somebody who is not a U.S. citizen what they most admire about the United States, and the space program will be mentioned in the top three okay. always, almost well. 100% of the time. So I think that means that you want to, making America great again is also keeping America great in what they do. And so mm -hmm. I don't see any major chops to things. There are major changes in direction. And in fact, there may be some boost uh, behind the space program. I would have to imagine... I would have to imagine, because certainly, again, just guessing that all of the scientific advances that are extremely valuable and important also potentially have use in other capacities for the government of the United mm -hmm. States or China or Russia, I would imagine, from a yeah. defense standpoint. Yeah, so. yeah that's true. And uh, Paragon does do things with the Defense Department. Um, we tend to work in areas to save lives, not to necessarily take them. <laughs> but there's always... You know, one of the things about doing life support, it's a little bit like the Terminator. You know, the, 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 <laughs> the Terminator was programmed with the full physiological, uh, you know, out makeup of a human because it was more efficient that way. Right. Um, but, uh, no, we're, we tend to be on the side of uh, keeping people alive, keeping our warfighters alive, keeping the good guys um, operational uh, so that they can go in and do what they need to do. Got it. I heard recently that um, that of what we understand of the ocean, we're just scratching the surface, that we've only explored maybe 10% of the actual ocean. Okay. Um, so why is that? Why, why don't we spend more time <laughs> in the ocean versus focusing uh -huh. our attention in outer space? Um, I think it's a little bit because of the drama associated with it. Uh, you know, back in the Jack Cousteau days, Jack Cousteau days, and I, I know his son uh, still alive and, and uh, I've worked with him actually, um, there is an effort to do that. There, the one thing about the ocean is you get below two or 300 feet and, and, uh, uh, and you're, you're away from shore. There's only a certain amount that's accessible at 200 or feet or so, but below that, you need artificial lighting. The visual, visuals is not very good. You know, it's dark down there. It's dark down there. If you ever <laughs> see the pictures from James Cameron's dive to the Mariana Trench, right? there's not a lot of video, video that comes out of that, not a lot of visuals. In fact, I've always wanted to ask him about that. As, you know, being a filmmaker, you know, how, how do you convey what you saw down there yeah. with the pictures you've got? And, and just the necessary, because of the pressures and stuff, your windows can't be big, so you can't see vast vistas. Hmm. So that's part of it. Um, Makes sense. Yeah, I think also um, that the it, there's a a dream with flying that there just isn't with going deep in the ocean. Mm -hmm. I think most humans can relate to vast, beautiful vistas of Earth and, and stars and moon that just doesn't um, 
translate well into the subsea world. But Paragon is involved in the subsea world too. It's again a life in extreme environment. It just happens to be high pressure instead of low pressure. No kidding. Mm-hmm. High pressure instead of low pressure. Mm-hmm. I hadn't considered that. Uh, if anybody was going to successfully be able to take pictures and movies of the bottom of the ocean, you would think it would be James Cameron. Right. It's just, is it due to the lack of a window to shine light out of or the lack of the ability to put lights on the outside of the vehicle? Mm-hmm. Well, no, they can all do all of that. And you, if, in the Titanic movie, you saw some pictures that he took. Uh, the one reason he went out and dove on the Titanic was to be able to take some of those external pictures of what it looks like. Right. I don't know how much of them they CGI'd it afterwards. Yeah. Um, and, and looking at some of it, it looks like they had too much view. Part of it is just the water is not clear. The, okay. The, the lower parts of Mariana and stuff, is it's almost a consistent rainfall of stuff floating down oh. above. <laughs> and so uh, the lights don't penetrate very far. They reflect <laughs> back at you. They, you know, a good Klieg light will give you maybe 50 to 100 feet. It, you can't see miles and miles and miles like you can when you're in space. Well, there you go. You could fill the ocean with stuff I don't know about the ocean. <laughs> Interesting. I, I had written down to ask you about James Cameron and the just the vessel that, that, that he created. Um, is that how much of that is his genius? Is he's, he just has resources and has engineers that he works with? Is it a combination? It's sure. a combination. I mean, I know who built his uh, his device, his his uh, kind of teardrop, or, or uh, uh, it's the right term. It's almost a pill shaped right uh, vehicle. Um, I'm in contact with them actually, and and yeah, one of my disappointments I think in life will be that I wasn't able to work on parts of that, but. But there are other companies, uh, Australian companies too, that, that do that type of work. Um, uh, but yeah, he, he, I think, like a lot of other entrepreneurial people, go out and find the people that are best at what they do and then get them in to do it and give the vision and the push forward. He, as I understand it, is very interested in the engineering, um, but you know, there's other people that have been working a long time on things too so right so uh he gets as i understand uh well in the knowledge so we can talk knowledgeably with him to make sure that he knows that they're not full of shit mm-hmm. can i say that on a, by all means on a podcast but <laughs> um uh but then he he goes out and hires the best people he can to do it so when you're in an extreme environment um and you are designing a vehicle a, a suit an enclosure for a human being that's going to be going into this extreme environment, how much goes into, we need to make sure that this person from a psychological standpoint is going to be comfortable? Uh, well, there's psychological and there's physical. And and on the physical side, it's very true. I mean, just even spacesuits, uh, astronauts come back with bruises in their shoulder joints and stuff because of the way that the bearings work and, hmm. and what they do. The psychological aspects have really taken a transformation in the last 20 years. Uh, if you would have asked NASA back in 1995, before they did the shuttle Mir missions, the ones with the Russian spacecraft, and asked them what were their top problems of going to Mars, psychology didn't even show up on the top 50. Right. And then after they did a bunch of uh, missions with the Russians on the Mir spacecraft, it went up to number five. Um, and the psychological aspect is tough. It's called the confined, in, in, it's isolated confined environments. And the by, just north of 
uh, Tucson here, we have Biosphere 2. They went through some of the issues associated with confined environments and isolated environments. Now, obviously, the space stations are a good example, but also overwintering in the Antarctic at the station down there. Sure. They have had uh, a decent amount of psychological issues. You can find them in the scientific literature if you look at them up. Um, and it's, it's a real concern. How, how even if it's even as four or five, six people, even if in Elon Musk's case, a hundred people spending you know eight months together in in a confined environment where you cannot go out the door and you cannot get away from other people, uh, is is psychologically uh, tough. Uh, I'm not convinced that A type uh, pilots are necessarily the best at handling that psychological issue, and so one thing NASA needs to do is make sure that they're in their selection of crews, they're, they're <laughs> thinking much more than just, uh, you know, uh, the right stuff type of people. Right. The, the right stuff test pilot wise is not necessarily the right stuff mentally for other things. No, I suppose it's not. Um, but the, the long or short of it is anybody in the long run could suppress something for uh, enough time if they're motivated enough to, to do it, to, to really persevere through. Um, but you can't rely. You have to, as a designer, take it into account. And one of the things they do with space stations now and spacecraft is define it proper up and down. Even though it doesn't matter in a microgravity environment of space, having the visual of this is up, this is down is important to a person. Yeah. You can do that by color coding. You you know by by coloring. You know making the lights on the ceiling one color and the lights emanating from the walls and stuff a different color <laughs> so that there's always a visual up. Um, and then, uh, I guess from our standpoint as engineers, making the equipment easy enough to use that it's not an aggravation all the time. Uh, being aggravated about something that your life depends on the whole way is also not good psychologically. That's a good point. Mm, yeah, I mean, the uh, it's actually one of the issues with growing plants on a spaceship, say, going to Mars, is... If you're relying on your life support system to be those plants, you end up so psychologically connected to those plants that it, it takes up your time forever. You're looking at every leaf to see if a little microbe or a little right. spot is showing up on a leaf. So that's one of the reasons why Paragon, um, we kind of pull back a little bit on the, the idea of a plant-based life support system, especially for microgravity. Once you get down on the surface and you've got extra area and you've got backup systems, then psychologically, things green can do more harm than good. But I think on the way, in a microgravity environment, uh, the weight and everything, and the psychological aspects are are a sort of a, a check mark against having growing plants in an environment like that. That's fascinating. I can imagine if you're in a, a spaceship and you're trying to grow these plants and one of them dies and there's only four left, how <laughs> stressful that would be. Right. Well, or if you have five square meters of them and then one of the you start leaves start turning brown in one corner right you know what do you do do you rip the plants out do you ah. you know do you have the right sprays <laughs> you, you know and, and if you you know obviously toxic environments if you got something toxic enough that will kill you know fungus uh what does it do to you and and so there's there's a lot of issues associated with growing plants on mars okay. or, i mean on the on the way to mars right interesting 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 and the idea of different personality types and people that would be 
good at being a test pilot versus people who would be able to manage the relationship of five other people or 50 other people. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the, uh, the leader of, and there will be a leader, that's, that's one thing. I, I don't think you'll ever have a spacecraft that's managed by consensus. Mm. <laughs> There'll always be a Captain Kirk um, because it is like a ship. You know, and there's been lots of ships. We have, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years of experience on sailing ships and long distances. And there's a reason by that it's become this hierarchy of captain and first mates and, and other things is they found that, excuse me, that's the best way to do it. I don't see that changing very much in spacecraft and in colonies uh, anytime soon. We were talking a little bit before we started the show about process and the importance of that, and that goes to that to a degree. There has to be protocol mm-hmm. um, with, I think, anything. I think that process is so important if you're going to be successful with any endeavor. We were also talking about artificial intelligence, and it strikes me that if you had robots, they would not get emotional. They, 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 they would not get cabin fever or island fever. They would not get angry at one another if you thought that you killed the plant that was going to keep us alive. That's true. It's just, um, at least today's world and in the foreseeable future, uh, a robot can only do what it's designed to do. And, and you can talk about artificial intelligence and neural nets and learning, ro- learning robots and stuff, but ultimately how you design their end effectors and their hands and how you design the, their, their physical structure will limit what they do. And, um, and a robot, so to have a robot look over and say, gee, that seems weird. I'm curious. I want to go over and take a look out of it. That is a leap mm. in AI that I don't know will ever be broken, frankly. Um, it, it's, I never say never. Uh, no scientist or engineer ever does and really means it. Um, but, you know, the, the discovery science, especially when you're in a new place, the, the going out and just looking what's there and asking the questions why and how did that come about and is that right or, or I have five theories in my mind of how, uh, you know, theorems and, and uh, things I want to figure out and that doesn't quite match any of them. That type of a cognitive capability um, I think is a long ways off. Mm-hmm. And uh, robots on, on Mars, they've been there for 15 years. They've done a lot of great science. Uh, they're fantastic examples of engineering prowess. But a human really could have probably done the same amount of work in a hundredth of the time, frankly. Uh, and because of that capability of cognition and, and adaption in the real-time environment. There you go. Double-edged sword. Well, I do also <laughs> want to say one thing, and I'll ask you a question. I don't mean to put you on the spot. But do you know the name and the country of which it came from of the first robot that landed on the moon? No. No. And you know what? I don't either. Why? Because I don't care. It's when humans <laughs> are involved that humanity gets involved, almost by definition. You know, all of the internet we have, all of the instantaneous ability to see anything, still the number one simultaneously viewed event in world history is still the landing on the moon, where an estimate 600 million people 
And mind you, there were only 400 million TVs in the whole world at the I time. I didn't realize that. 600 million people watched it all at the same time. Now, part of that was because there was no YouTube. There was no instant video replay. You know, you, there, was, there was nothing like that. But it was also the curiosity aspect. Go back and look at newsreels of people, 20, 30, 40 people gathering around the window display of a TV at a, at a department store right. and watching the event. Um, that's, I get often asked, and, and frankly, in very hostile environments, especially up in Congress with why spend money on humans, and that's usually my answer, is, is you, if you really want to involve humanity in this because they're the ones that care. And, and you know, the, the robot that landed, the, the, um, the Mars scientific lander, that uh, the robot that's on there now and tooling around, they were really happy when they had three, 35 million people watching the landing of that. 35 million. That's still 5% of what they had right. watching the first landing on the moon. Um, and while the scientific community was thrilled and NASA was thrilled with those numbers, uh, you won't get the numbers like Apollo until you send people. Yeah. I had, once the first people land on Mars, all of the famous robots, Viking, Sojourner, uh, Opportunity, all of those, if they get mentioned at all in a textbook, will be a footnote. Right. It's hmm. a good point. That's a good point. The human element. Got it. And that's why I started the company. Like I said, it's it's the humans. Getting the humans out there, keeping humans alive in places where they would not survive without technology is really the raise of the answer of my company. How far off are we from... How far off am I from... Will I... In, let me see if I can ask this question. Um, will I be able to go to the moon in my lifetime, to Mars in my lifetime? I'm um, 38, so. Yeah, you're a youngin'. Um, I, you will definitely see people go, Okay. Uh, I believe, as long as you're healthy and, and keep the bad habits down and right. keep, keep, take care of yourself. Yes. I think you will see humans walking on Mars. Um, I believe that if not you, that your children will be able to book a trip to space. Now that may be suborbital, that may be orbital. Uh, I also want it to be that you or, you or your children or your grandchildren look up and there's a plaque on the wall that says your life support by Paragon and that makes you feel 100% comfortable that you're in good hands. Right, I love that. What's orbital versus suborbital? Suborbital is like what um, uh, Virgin Galactic is doing with the with the uh, the White Knight Two and the uh, and the their spacecraft, um, which is to go up above the Van Karman line, hundred kilometers, which is kind of considered the or you are legitimately in space, and then just be up there for a few minutes, five ah, minutes or so, and come back down. Okay. Orbital is getting up so that you're going fast enough that you continuously fall around Earth at seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. Got it. How about that? Nice. Well, I have a 10-week-old at home named James Boris. So, James Boris, you're going to be in the, you're going to be on the moon one day, potentially or Mars, and you can thank Mr. Anderson for keeping you safe. Mm -hmm. Um are, are you a Star Trek fan? Yeah, I came late to the game. I didn't grow up in the United States. Okay. And so I remember my freshman <laughs> year Everybody used to go get their dinner real quick and then all gather around the TV to watch the old Star Trek episodes. And it fascinated me because there were people who could recite the whole um, <laughs> episode word for word, Troubles with Tribbles or any of those. Right. So I got to I kind of got to be 
Star Trekified, uh, become a Trekkie uh, a little late in life. I was in my you know late teens and early twenties. But yes, I I I do like them. I, I do like how they push technology. Frankly, I think Peter Diamandis does a good talk on on really science fiction is really almost is is almost at the forefront. Um, I know Loretta uh, Hidalgo Whitesides uh, has said that you know other people see science fiction and, and want to uh, mimic the technology. I see the science fiction, I want to mimic the, the social aspects, the, the peace and the, you know, there for all mankind and boldly going where no person has gone before. And, um, and I agree with that. I think the space is, is a non-national thing in a way. It, it is a humanity um, endeavor, not necessarily any one country. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a chance to uh, to structure society or structure at least uh, enough of a common goal in society that the petty goals don't necessarily um, get in the way and get to violence. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Um, the The prime directive in Star Trek, and I unfortunately. It, don't think that I understand what that is exactly, but fundamentally speaking, it's a absolute number one rule. Mm-hmm. Do you see that that we, as a country, as a as a world, need to come up with things like that? Um, you know, I I know that there are a few think tanks that have done some. You know, what happens if we contact an alien species type thing? One thing I will say: the Prime Directive. Um, only applies to sentient beings, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, that <laughs> I should research that better. They're not. They're not worried about maybe landing and, and killing the bacteria on a on a surface, as far as I know. But I'm not a I'm not a student of it either. Um, but uh, yeah, I think in the end, uh, when we do meet something that can say hello back, <laughs> um, that it will be in our best interest to have a non-interference basis of, uh, of a policy um, for many reasons. Um, and uh, one thing is is if you do interfere with the development of another alien species, uh, if that's not a good experience, you now create an enemy for life. So I think to stay off, excuse me, stay back is a good thing to do. Right. And be very careful. Are there aliens out there? Um, I would be surprised if they're not I, uh, uh, out there, meaning anywhere in the universe. Yes. Do I believe they visited <laughs> us in the last, you know, 50 years? Uh, no. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I like a, uh, a line from Calvin and Hobbes. And uh, it was Calvin and Hobbes walking in the woods and talking about all the strife in the world and, <laughs> and, uh, and all the problems that are going on. And Calvin says, sometimes I think the surest... Sign, surest sign that there's intelligent life in the universe is that none of it has tried to contact us, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I I've always thought about that. <laughs> it's one that's, of my favorite things. That's a pretty good point, <laughs> right? Right. If you were an alien and watching us, would you want to contact us? That's mm-hmm. a question. But um, but yeah, I mean, just the probability of the as Carl Sagan would say, billions and billions of stars out there. And now the more planets we're finding, the planets are not a anomaly; they're a common thing. Just looking in the vicinity of what we can see, uh, how common they are, 
I think the probability there's not life is now getting extremely small. I think Drake's equation is is uh, is still highly relevant. I don't know what that is. Mm. Drake uh, <laughs> Drake's equation is an equation made by Francis Drake. I can't I can't remember his full name, but essentially it was a probability that there's another life out there and that we could contact it. So it had a is how many stars out there that can that have a habitable zone how many planets are then in the habit of those what percentage of those have have planets in the habitable zone how many of those will develop technology beyond a rudimentary level how many of those will develop radio or contact technology and it goes down this list of all these probabilities until you get okay depending on how, what numbers you pick it will tell you there's billions out there or there's one you know and and obviously if any of these factors are zero there's none Got it. And and one <laughs> of the factors in the Drake equation is how many planets might be in the habitable zone, and and that number has gone from, you know, a wide speculation of zero to every one, to a number that's pretty high now. And so that little piece of the Drake equation has been has been uh, at least shown to be better for life than than it wasn't than it was you know, twenty years ago. Got it. Well, that certainly makes sense. It's a big world out there, and we're just developing the technology to see more of it every day, I suppose. Yeah. Actually, the most limiting uh, part of the Bird-Drake equation is which ones have developed radio or other technologies so they can detect us and we can detect them. And, you know, we're only uh, well, about, um, what is it now, 80 years into radio. We're only the first real mass radios, 1920s, <laughs> 19. Uh, teens, 1920s, and early 1930s, and with all the internet and everything else and, and how our communication is going, we may go radio silent to the outside world in another, you know, 50, 20 years, so, or 100 years. So if, if a civilization's only detectable for 100 and 150 years where they use this archaic radio technology, and then everything goes fiber optic underground or whatever else, hmm. or everything goes short, uh, short, uh, uh, short distance type radio like Wi-Fi's and stuff for communicating around. We have, we might have this fully interconnected system that doesn't bleed any. Doesn't give signs out. Doesn't give signs out to the world. So that's one of the most restricting things of the Drake equation, and what maybe one reason why we haven't heard from other ones is is you just don't spend that much time in that technology window. Got it. Awesome. So if people are listening to this. How can they get involved? How can they, if they say, gosh, I'd like to be one of those people that gets to go to space? Well, um, well, gets to go to space and getting involved are two different things. It's okay. sort of like the Apollo program, you know, only uh, 12 people uh, stepped on the moon, but, uh, but uh, hundreds of thousands of people helped them get there. And, and I know many of the astronauts have said uh, very graciously that they recognize they were only the very tip of the spear of an extremely large support base that they relied on for everything. Um, but, you know, it is, uh, obviously science and math is one way, um, but I think to some degree we're overemphasizing that too much um, uh, from a involvement standpoint. Um, like any business and also like any endeavor, you need multiple skills. Um, uh, not everybody has to be a sailor. Some people have to be shipbuilders. Some people have to be people who know how to package the food that goes on the ship so it'll last. Um, uh, you know, there, so there's a lot of functions required. Uh, frankly, you need marketing, you need PR too mm -hmm. in, in today's world, uh, or else you get buried by the Kardashians, right? So, <laughs> so, um, so there, there's a whole bunch of functions. The main thing is to um, not give up. 
that's probably the trait that I see most um, indicative of success of anybody. It's not necessarily how smart you are. It's not necessarily how well you got A's on your tests in college. It's how much you persevere. And perseverance is the number one trait. The second one is, is to get there fast, learn from the people before you. Don't assume you know everything yourself. Um, Elon Musk, I know, is famous in saying in his books and other things that people say, how did you learn to build rockets? And he says, I read books. And <laughs> it's true. It's out there. Uh, got Google today. Boy, what a, I wonder how my childhood would have been different if when I was 20 and I had Google instead of having to go down and learn the Dewey Decimal System and right. card reading and how, how to get cards out of a library. But um, there's no excuse for being ignorant. And, uh, and there's no excuse for making mistakes of the people before you. Then <laughs> you know? there's lots of well-written things. Um, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, though, said, uh, you know, uh, if, if something, if an eminent scientist says something can be done, they're almost always right. If an eminent scientist say it can't be done, they're almost always wrong. Um, and that's true, too. There's a certain amount of, of, and I think that's where youth comes in. Youth have that um, unjaded confidence in their ability to go do stuff that sometimes breaks through the it can't be done, um, and they find a way to do it. And uh, a lot of progress is made that way. So that's that's an, that's part of the perseverance trait, mm -hmm. uh, just making sure you persevere, and having a a good confidence, but a, not an overconfidence is probably another one. Mm -hmm. Just the right amount. Well, I really appreciate your time. This has been awesome. What else would you like to get off your chest, if anything? Well, um, I think. If I were to free form, I would say that one of the things that I've found doing life support is that it's unsexy. You know, it's, it's interesting how many times that I talk to entrepreneurs that are starting up a company to build a space station or to uh, build a, build a human-carrying rocket, and the life support system is kind of thought as an afterthought. Um, what we give as a presentation to uh, new companies like that is you never launch a person into orbit. You always launch a person wrapped in a life support system. And if you don't understand what that is and how that affects your rocket or affects your mode of transportation and affects your living, your habitat, um, you're starting at the wrong place. It's, it's, again, part of the con ops and getting the requirements down. So um, I'd love to see a lot more people uh, young young people and, and old people too coming in and saying I want to work the life support because wow that's the hardest thing and it is the hardest thing where you know the, we have proven every technology go to, to Mars except the life support system navigation rockets we've done it how to land yes we need to upscale them we need to we need to be able to land larger payloads but really the thing we have no existence proof of is that we can support a group of people for a long enough time in a spacecraft with no you know, resupply from Earth, no, oh my God, this part broke, we need a new part shipped up from Earth. There's none of that capability. We've never done that. So I'd love to see more emphasis on that part of the problem. 
Sounds like we and need it. We do need it. Paragon has proposed it many times. We've been, I'm working on another one right now. Uh, we need to start proving that out. And whether we prove it out in low Earth orbit, and a lot of people say, well, the space station didn't they prove that out. Well, the space station had a spares philosophy that said if something breaks, we bring up a new one from Earth and plug it in. There was not very much thought put into maintainability. Uh, there's a great um, study out of MIT that trades off what is is it more important to be reliable or to be maintainable? And their study was Ooh. pretty, and, and it makes sense. You know, the reliable means you have two of everything. One breaks down, the other one can go in its place. Um, and th from a weight standpoint, how much weight you have to launch, their study came down extremely high on maintainability is much more important than reliability. Uh, and part of that, and this, they were talking about life support systems, part of that is very few life support systems break down that, you know, the person starts dying right away, you know, you know, obviously you, you vent to space or, right. or something like that, but there's usually you're talking about a habitat that even if the oxygen system craps out and you can't produce oxygen, you usually have a storage tank of it because you have a buffer anyway, you can live for, you know, anywhere from hours to days before you get the oxygen system back up. So it's not necessarily the fact that you need to switch to a new one right away to maintain a livable environment. But what's really important is that you can figure out what's wrong, get into it, not have to disassemble half of the machinery, which also then causes other problems that doesn't work, and go and fix the thing. You've got to make it maintainable, and which is really a design engineering problem, but it's one that needs to be paid attention to. Certainly one of the uh, the main things that goes wrong in all the outer space type movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Whole and, life support and, system. Yeah, well, but then, then and then they show them, you know, underneath and they switch out one thing and it works all again. That's right. maintainability. Uh, that's not reliability. That's maintainability. Got it. Awesome. Well, Grant Anderson, thank you so much. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show and tell a friend. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Good job.